Coming to you live from Star Worldwide Networks in Scottsdale, Arizona. Be, dream, do. Living by design. The radio show is focused on people sharing their stories of how they were able to understand what they were really passionate about and had the courage to dream big and then did it. Now, join the conversation with your host, David. Well, good morning, listeners. Welcome to Be Dream Do Radio. This is your host, Dave Whitehorn, and with my son, Sean. Hi, good morning. I have to tell you, listeners, we have uh, a very, very special guest with us today. Uh, I'm actually humbled to be in his presence in all seriousness. This is Pat McMahon, actor, program director, talk show host, disc jockey, rock star. Sounds like I really can't keep a job. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like I'm a floater and you can't depend on me. (laughs) Uh, Pat, you're a true icon in the entertainment world. You do know that icon is Greek for geezer. (laughs) David, Sean, what a way to start this program. I'm ready to be, I'm ready to do, I'm ready to dream, and all of those things. And here we're talking about somebody it's been around now since Camelback Mountain was a hump. <laughs> so where am I going with the next hour? Is this whole hour going to be about me? It's all about you. Oh, I hope people don't drift off. <laughs> David. <laughs> I don't think there's going to be any chance of that, Pat. Um, this show is all about helping people understand how they ended up doing what they truly love. And there was a survey done last year by Gallup Poll that said that only 15% of the people in the workforce today really love what they do. Now, what a waste oh. that is. Oh, oh. I just, you just caused me to get whiplash <laughs> uh, because I know the vast majority of folks feel that while that may be true in their lives, right. that they can't do anything about it. And I know that you two guys are here regularly to tell people, yes, they can do something about it. And I think it may be one of the reasons why you invited me, because philosophically, uh, we're going in the same direction. If if I had that attitude uh, driving to work every morning, I think I would turn around and just go back and lock my door and sit there and... uh, Watch as the world turns or something. (laughs) Uh, Because truly, every morning, I look forward to uh, going to work. But then again, people who are listening right now are saying, yeah, sure, because you've gotten to do it for all these years. And Mm -hmm. it's not exactly like you're a roofer in the middle of August in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, You get a chance to talk to the most interesting people in the world. That's your job. But... You're only going to be around once. Uh, and if, in fact, there is such a thing as reincarnation, you may come back as a tea kettle. So uh, what are you going to know? Yeah. Uh, you got one time to go around and you better grab it and chomp down and enjoy the ride the best you possibly can. Seize the moment. Seize it. Yeah, absolutely. And no matter what it is, that caused you to have problems in the past, and everybody has them, some far more than others. But no matter what, no matter what kind of tragedy took place, uh, I'm going to be doing uh, The God Show a little bit later on, and it's about widowhood, but a woman who was married for 46 years and all of a sudden was alone. And I know that many of your listeners right now have had that kind of a loss, threw their arms up in despair and said, I can't go on. What do I know? What am I going to do without that person? And uh, you you have so many other areas and other arenas to experience with the memories of that person. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's almost like shifting from, oh my gosh, what a loss, to thank God I had all this time with that person. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think I've taken up the first 25 minutes of the show already. (laughs) Well, what we're interested in is, you know, when did you really understand that entertainment was what you you were here for, what you really loved? Now, if there are people right now who are saying, this is it, (laughs) 
This is the key because I want a life in the world of entertainment. How do I get there? Well, I'm afraid mine was a little simpler than most people have because I was born into a theatrical family. Right, right. Uh, my parents did a dance act, and uh, we traveled everywhere. We would uh, come into a town, maybe spend a week. If it was uh, New York, Chicago, L.A., uh, with a lot of different gigs, right? Uh, we might be there a month or two. Okay. And then we would move on. It was an incredible life. And that life was the life of vaudeville, wasn't it? Back yes, in the 30s? Yeah, it, it, was, uh, it was vaudeville. Well, uh, it was uh, my dad was 30 years older than my mother. Oh, and by the way, for those of you who are saying, well, I really probably should plan a family according to the standards of society. <laughs> my dad was 30 years older than my mother, and uh, it all worked out very well for them. But he lived in the life of vaudeville. And I think you'll find this entertaining, if not fake it and pretend to be interested, David. <laughs> All right, I'll try to fake it. Uh, I really will. <laughs> uh, my father was in the era of vaudeville when it was really at its peak in theaters, the Orpheum circuit, the Lowe's circuit. Hmm. You would travel uh, through uh, the cities of the United States, often just playing in those theaters for that run and then you would go to another group of theaters and uh, very, very high class kind of performances, uh, sometimes with a movie and then eight acts of vaudeville. But vaudeville performers like the Marx Brothers and uh, W.C. Fields right. when he was a juggler. All the big ones. Uh, yeah. Uh, George before Gracie and George... With Gracie. Okay. Uh, and, uh, and my dad got to work with all of them. Uh, it was a headliner. And uh, so then he was looking for a new partner and heard about this dancer outside of Kansas City, Missouri. And uh, Adelaide, Adelaide Crandall. <laughs> and heard, heard about the fact that she did ballet, contortion work, acrobatic work, all of these varieties of performance in the world of dance and said, uh, hey, you're exactly what we're looking for. She was 18. She was 18 at the And he was not one of those kinds of old, dirty men. Yeah, exactly. And uh, her mom said, you can't take my daughter on the road. I know what you have in mind. Show business varlet. (laughs) <laughs> can't be trusted. I read about you. And he said, all right, listen, I know you come from Leavenworth, Kansas, and uh, where the prison is and where the fort is. And uh, he said, you, uh, you have to understand, we travel the world. I'm not interested in anything other than her dancing ability. And so she can go with me or not. But I can promise you this now, I will never, ever aggressively come on to your daughter, Adelaide Crandall, because I'm not interested. I'm just interested in the act. Right. And she said, all right, I'll let her go if I go with her. I've never told this story in here. That's and interesting. He, he said, oh, no, not the mother-in-law. Before <laughs> anything even happens, I've got all of a sudden her mom. And they traveled... They traveled for a while, and finally mom decided she could trust this, this, this ancient old person, right. and she could. She just couldn't trust her daughter, mm-hmm. who began aggressively to show an enormous amount of interest in this, uh, in this man. And uh, he, uh, he contacted her mom and said, I just want you to know, I had nothing to do with this. You don't want to... If you don't want a guy marrying your daughter that looks like me and sounds like me and is my age, you tell me now, and I'll send her back to Leavenworth. My goodness. What a story. uh, Yeah. And uh, so then after a little while, they were traveling in South America, and uh, my mom noticed that her wardrobe was beginning uh, to fit 
a little differently than it had. <laughs> and that was me. And that was you. And she went back. And Dave, Sean, ladies and gentlemen, I can only tell you this is one of the few uh, bad decisions, I think, that my parents ever made. My mom said, I want to go back home and have this baby, and then we can go back out on the road. Except mm. back home was Leavenworth, Kansas. I could have been born in Rio de Janeiro. <laughs> I could have been born in Lima, Peru, in Paris, right? Any place in the world. But no, she has to go back where I get prison jokes all my life. There's no place like home, though. Yeah, well, if it's Leavenworth, Kansas, right. But I, I took one look around at the age of five weeks and said, let me out of here. Right. So you, got, you went back on the road. Went on the road at five weeks, went to South America, and traveled uh, for the next umpteen years. My whole elementary school education was spent with what is now called homeschooling, was called correspondence courses. That's right. Then. Amazing, amazing story. So that's how you start in show business. Be born into a theatrical family. That's the best move. That's the best way to do it. And, and if, you, if you have not been born into a, a family, then you're out of luck. Other than other than the second choice. And the second choice is do it. Start dancing. Start singing. Even if people don't want you to. Uh, if you have a penchant for comedy, uh, put together a routine. I don't care whether you're six, seven years old. Some of those kids can be very, very funny. Absolutely. And they've got a great sense of timing. Uh, but do it. And when you're in school, try out for every play. Right. Uh, join the chorus. Uh -huh. uh, if you want to learn to play an instrument even badly, join the band. But do it. And the more you do it, you'll either find out whether you really do want to do it right. professionally or you, <laughs> you made a terrible decision and it's not too late. You can go ahead and do talk shows on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> Which actually is another way of entertaining people and not traveling. That's how I decided to get into broadcasting. I said, I, uh, I loved traveling, but I lived out of a suitcase on the road all of those years. What can I do that wouldn't necessitate my having to constantly be on the road, but I would still have an audience? Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, wait. That radio thing sounds kind of interesting. Never dreamed about television. But that radio thing seems kind of interesting. And uh, so that's what I studied in college. That's amazing. You know, you talk about the time with your folks and how that led into what you're doing today. But so many times we talk to people and say, just because it, you know, that it was their folks, that they decided to do something different. So is it a sense that you knew from the beginning that this is what you wanted to do or you just kind of fell into it and for lack of anything else or any other options, you just continued? No, I always loved it. I, w I mean, imagine, though, yeah. being a kid and uh, you haven't even started the show yet. Rehearsal is going on. Right. So your parents just pulled into this town, came to the theater, and they're rehearsing with the band, and so's the comic, and so's the magician, <laughs> and so's the Latin dance team, right? Yeah, and right. I'm in the third row, and I'm watching all the what? What's not right. to love? That was magic. Uh, and there was this other thing. I didn't know how to do anything else. <laughs> Beautiful. And uh, the idea of being mechanically adept uh, or having skills at virtually anything, uh, that eluded me. And so uh, you sing a little, you dance a little, uh, and uh, you tell a few jokes, and if the audience is interested and people pay you for it, I don't know that it gets much better than that. So what was your main act then? Back when? When, In, when I was it, a kid? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> my, my main act was living as an only child uh, and living with such freedom that it is amazing to me that my parents weren't arrested. Uh, <laughs> they, they were, they were a, a strict family in mm. that there were rules right. 
and you followed the rules, and if you didn't like a rule, you could, with a sense of democracy, bring it up for a vote, and they'd listen. Uh, but uh, for the most part, <laughs> picture this, Sean, now, as David's kid. I don't know how much flexibility there was in your house, but we would pull into a city, let's just say Cleveland or Detroit, but cities that size. Okay. My parents would go to the theater and get the wardrobe and the equipment for the act out of the car and put it in the dressing room, and then they would start to rehearse. And I would say, I'm going to go out and check out the town. Now, I'm talking about a kid six, seven, eight years old. (laughs) Wow. And they said, be back here. Uh, Be back here at such and such a time. That's when we're going to have lunch. So be back in the dressing room. There's no problem with Mm. my exploring. Mm. The biggest cities in the world go into the department stores, maybe take it in a movie. Never do I ever remember having a problem with anybody, anytime. Some people thought I was a midget uh, <laughs> because I was on my own right. paying admission at the theater and, uh, and going to the refreshment stand getting popcorn. Uh, but it was that kind of freedom, that kind of trust, perhaps <laughs> now that I look back on it, too much trust in society. But David, to tell you the truth, I don't remember the kinds of fear domestically in family units understand then i don't remember hearing about it or reading about it then that i do now mm-hmm. it had to exist right bad people had to exist then probably in the same numbers yeah. or maybe they just didn't particularly like me and they went after somebody else it's an interesting observation um very interesting observation. I hope so, because we have 45 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you must have been a streetwise kid, though, with all the traveling and you, you, with confidence you knew what yeah, you were doing. Yeah, and, and, and independence mm-hmm. that offered me a sense of personal confidence, yeah. uh, not in any specific arena of confidence, uh, but just confidence in being able to make decisions mm-hmm. uh, on my own. Also, I always showed up on time back in the dressing room for lunch. <laughs> that was a big deal. That's you know? pretty good. Yeah, no, don't be late. That's pretty good. So that was the, the other side of building trust, that they would allow you to go out and do things knowing that you would come back. Yeah, I know, that, I know that right now there are people saying, right. those people right. should have gone to prison because look at what they allowed that freedom and the kid was out in the streets of the cities of the world. But you know what? Mm -hmm. It worked because I not only still feel confident walking around the cities of the world, uh, I feel confident just simply being, not being exceptional at all, not confident that I'm better at something than somebody else's. That doesn't even enter my mind. Uh, But uh, just confident to do, to be, to dream. Ooh, wait a minute. Uh Where did that come from? I think you might be onto something. (laughs) No, I I was blessed with loving, uh, affectionate parents. I mean, there was a lot of hugging and kissing. uh, and that's something that you still carry on in your day. Oh, yeah. <laughs> to, to the point that I am often, uh, I, I am often near arrest. Uh, because <laughs> when you pick up a child in a grocery store, uh, you should always ask the mother if it's okay. <laughs> that's, a got, good, that's a good point. That, I got that's that a, from yeah, my dad, um, though. Right, yeah, my, yeah. I got that from yeah. my dad. My yeah. mom would say, where did you get that child? Would you go put that child back on aisle six for crying out loud? There's a lady running around looking for the kid. Uh, but anyway, I had a, had a wonderful, wonderful childhood. And not in retrospect. I knew that it was wonderful. That Oh, I will tell both of you something that 
I had no knowledge of at all. Uh, being a child, I, I, I think it's like my dogs. I don't think that they know their dogs. And I didn't know that I was a kid because I wasn't around that many other kids. Some of them were show business kids. But I were around the kids in the neighborhood, wherever it is that we would park. It was in a trailer most of the time. And we would play. But I'd never been on a school playground. Mm. I had never seen a blackboard. Mm. Uh, I had no idea what classroom anything was like. Uh, I knew because my mom, who had only taught dancing up to that time, would say sometime after breakfast, okay, let's hit the books. And uh, my entire education... Uh, finished grade school in six years just because it was a one-on-one thing. I was no prodigy, uh, but because you have the experience of of that kind of of one-on-one education, it's, it's focused. pretty easy to move mm-hmm. fairly fast. There's a place in Baltimore called the Calvert School, and they still provide complete lesson plans, books, grading, everything for show business kids, circus kids, Broadway kids, military kids. And uh, so th- I went to Calvert School after breakfast every day. And, uh, and even that was fun. Yeah. An amazing story. At what point in time did you stop uh, doing the world travel and continue your education formally? Well, that was the day that my parents said, so Pat, it was my mom, your father and I, have been saying that even though we're going to miss you as an only child, uh, and I'm thinking, wait, what is this missing? <laughs> Where's this where, going? Where, where is this? How do you get divorced from your child? What is that? What did I do? And uh, they said, no, that you, you really have to have some kind of an experience academically mm. uh, and what a wonderful gift that was, because we were a family unit. They had not been without me. I hadn't been without them. Uh, I don't think that I really ever remember having an overnight uh, as such, because I didn't know anybody that well. Right. Hmm. And um, so when it was time, for example, around October for, uh, for the weather to get a little chilly, my dad would say, so where do you want to spend the winter? And then we would say New Orleans, Miami, uh, San Diego, or something like that. Uh, heavenly. Wow. It was absolutely terrific. Well, we had that kind of conversation, that kind of communication all the time. And this communication consisted of, we're going to send you away now. <laughs> and I had never been away. And I understood the value, though, that they were talking about. That was pretty clear to me and kind of exciting. It was like walking around Detroit, except for nine months out of the year. Where am I going? Well, there's a city right in the middle of the United States. So you will be equidistant from us wherever we are. And we found that there's an outstanding Catholic boys prep school. Uh, They're very much like Brophy here. Right. And a few hundred students, but about 12 boarders, uh, 10, 11, 12 kids who came from different parts of the country. And uh, they had boarding facilities, private rooms in this separate dorm building. And um, they said, we would like you to go there. Des Moines, Iowa, one of the few cities I had never been to. Des Moines, Iowa. How do you spell it? Okay. All right. And that's right in the middle of Iowa, right in the middle of the United States. Sounds like fun. When are we going? Tomorrow. (laughs) They were gracious enough to slow down (laughs) as we passed the school. They had done a lot of research. and, And listen, you know, the reality, too, is for a dance act, it's pretty expensive stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went, had no idea what was going on. 
was late for my first day of school because I had no idea what the bells were for. I thought it was a fire drill. Is that right? Had no idea. Nobody bothered to tell me that when the bell rings, that means you're supposed to be in class. Uh, so I know I was there, the sh- there. You were wandering the halls looking for the fire. Yes. And, and what do they call them? Hall monitors. Hall monitors. Right? That's right. Yeah. And it was the first time I'd ever seen one. Now, why is that kid sitting in a chair in the hall all by himself? He needs company. I'll go over and do about five or six minutes of stand-up for him. He said, what are you doing? Why are you walking around? I said, well, I'm supposed to be in this classroom. Went in, explained to the teacher who was the football coach for about 12 minutes why I was late and where I came from. And and he's looking at me. Finally, he said, sit down. <laughs> Just sit down. You have to understand, Dave, Sean, listen, I would have attracted attention anyway because I was the youngest. I was just past 12. I was the smallest. I looked like I was about maybe nine uh, and talked as if I was 36. Right. <laughs> So you can imagine how popular I was for the first few weeks. Absolutely. Well, and there was all of a, you know, who is this strange being that (laughs) dropped down? They didn't know about UFOs then, but this alien (laughs) creature. But I got along fine and loved it for four years. And that's how I made the transition. Because it was also the longest I'd ever lived anywhere. Mm-hmm. And I went home for vacations and things. But it was great fun. Des Moines was terrific. Went to college in the Quad Cities as I was enjoying the Middle West. Davenport, Iowa, right across the street from Rock Island, Illinois. Went to St. Ambrose University and uh, studied radio until someone said, Hey, you want a job in radio? I said, Oh, wait a minute. That's what I'm studying. I guess these opportunities don't come along too often. And that was it. And look where I wound up. Right here with Dave and Sean on the Star Worldwide Networks. Uh, With the producer, Robin Cote. Wonderful. You know, uh, Pat, you still talk like a 36-year-old. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, considering the fact that I'm 112. <laughs> High praise indeed. So how in the world did you get to Phoenix? You know, all of these are long stories. So if you're really planning on brief responses, Dave, you got the wrong guy. Uh, okay, so uh, let me see. Where was I? I was in uh, radio in Iowa, in Davenport, then television. Uh, just auditioning for things. And uh, I, aud- I auditioned for my first television commercial. And for the Iowa listeners, by the way, that we have, it was WOC, one of the earliest radio and television stations in the country. And it stood for Wonders of Chiropractic. Because B.J. Palmer, who was the founder founder. of chiropractic, he and his dad, they had the school across the street and they said, hey, this radio thing sounds kind of interesting back in the 20s. And they created WOC and then television later. But um, I was doing nighttime mood music uh, radio. And listening to the Cardinals football or baseball games uh, from St. Louis. And um, there was a memo that went around. This is kind of in the mood of what it is that you tell people on the show every week, Dave and Sean. Hmm. Uh, the, the, the memo came around. I don't think I ever told this either, but it just occurred to me. It said auditions for supermarket television commercial. Uh, to be, it's sponsoring a primetime show. So it was big audience, big time stuff for Davenport. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I thought, oh, I've never done that. Okay, and the audition is uh, day after tomorrow. That's fine. I'll ask the program director what he wants me to wear. 
And he said, Pat, uh, this is a supermarket. You have to look like an adult because it's usually grown-ups, right? And I, st- I didn't look like nine anymore. It was about 12, 13 <laughs> about that time. I looked like I was approaching puberty. <laughs> and uh, so here, you know, here I was in my mid-20s. And he said, please, I don't want you to be embarrassed. I like you. You're a, you're a good guy on the radio. But please, don't do this to yourself because it's a supermarket commercial, and they want somebody that looks like maybe a dad. And I said, will you be offended? I remember this. Will you be offended if I come in and audition anyway? Wow. And he said, uh, no, as long as you know what you're up against. Mm-hmm. And the competition, all guys with graying sideburns, and voices like this <laughs> that came from the cellar. <laughs> and I uh, auditioned. And the next day, the memo came out that Pat got the gig. Wow. Look at that. And all I remember is, is somebody told me that the advertising agency and the client got together and said, we want the, uh, the little guy with the peculiar voice. <laughs> <laughs> so it was kind of an advantage to be different. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Now, what he, what your uh, boss perceived as as a as a disadvantage, actually turned to your favor. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. And that's yeah. that's one of the reasons why it is that I hope your audience will also recognize the fact that fear prevents you from accomplishing so much. Hmm. Fear of being rejected. Fear of not getting the job, fear of uh, being embarrassed uh, and all of those things. And uh, for whatever reason, that was not something that ever motivated me, negatively motivated me. Uh, And I remember vividly to this day, the program director coming in saying, just shut up, Pat. I don't want to hear about it. (laughs) Listeners, Pat McMahon, uh, incredible guest that we have today, a wonderful story. Let's take a break right now, and then we're going to hear about how he came to Phoenix. 85% of employees hate their jobs. That's right. That's what last year's Gallup poll said after surveying millions. Only 15% were truly passionate about the work they did. If you are among the 85% who don't like their work, You're invited to join our weekly podcast radio show every Tuesday from 10 to 11 a.m. Recorded live at Star Worldwide Network Studio in Scottsdale, Arizona at BeDreamDoRadio.com. You will hear guests of all ages and backgrounds who all have one thing in common. They love what they do. Tune in and explore how they found out what was most important to them, how they dreamed big, and put a plan into action to realize their dreams. Join us in the conversation. Now, back to the show. Well, welcome back, listeners. We have the icon in the entertainment industry, Pat McMahon, a.k.a. Gerald. (laughs) Do you realize there there are thousands of people listening right now who are saying, oh, was that his middle name? uh, Actually, did you know that I am John Patrick Michael McMahon. I didn't know that. Welcome in any pub in Ireland <laughs> at any time of day. <laughs> but Gerald, we should say, is one of the characters that I did on a kid's show. Once I got to Phoenix, how did that happen? Pat? How did that happen, did you get Pat? To Phoenix? <laughs> <laughs> did you ever pass through Phoenix where you were touring with your parents? Uh, I don't remember. I don't remember. I do know that my dad told me that he performed before my mom, Mm -hmm. before he met her, in vaudeville at the Orpheum Theater. Oh. Here, downtown. downtown. And it used to be, because Phoenix was such a small town at that time, it used to be a kind of a quick one-night stand or maybe overnight, two performances, two nights, um between 
say, Dallas and Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the way the touring came, right? And most of the time they traveled by train mm-hmm. in those days. But they would come through and uh, stop here for a couple of days. And, uh, and going back through the dressing rooms, as I have in the mm-hmm. Orpheum Theater, I, every once in a while, think, wow, I wonder which one he was in. I wonder, wow. you know, yeah. That's a real magical moment. A real magical moment. Yeah, the because that's, behind it. Yeah. no, and that, and, that, uh, and that building, of course, has been around uh, since before most of the buildings uh, in the Valley. But you asked how I got to Phoenix after broadcast radio and television in uh, Iowa. I got drafted. And we weren't mad at anybody at the time. Uh, we didn't have any conflict going on. So they felt that it was safe to have me in uniform. Uh, <laughs> entertained for a little bit. <laughs> well, as a matter of fact, Sean, it turned out to be exactly that. Wow. <laughs> because I did let it be known, because you go into basic training, you have no idea where you're going to wind up or doing what. And I'm thinking, okay, Armed Forces Radio, that's a possibility. But I'm probably at the end of the line of about 400,000 other guys. And so let me just simply put down in this biographical thing that you sign uh, some of the other things. Uh, My background on the road and uh, a little singing, a little dancing. And uh, after basic training in Colorado Springs, all of a sudden they call my name and you think, oh, don't have me carrying around a machine gun (laughs) in Texarkana or wherever. They said, McMahon, you're supposed to report to the base theater. And And they were waiting for me, they being a group of people who had... Get this, Dave. Ready, Sean? Again, Irish luck. They had a touring entertainment group that they were putting together. Wow. I want to make sure I get this right. This is the U.S. Army you're talking about, right? right, right, The U.S. Army putting together. Right, right. Well, actually, the the Army was considering having me fight for the other side. But since I was... Since I was in uh, U.S. khakis, now truly, went from basic training to still in Colorado Springs, uh, a rehearsal hall. I auditioned as an MC and got a few laughs. They said, you're in. So for two years, all I did was what I have done as a kid, travel the country very nicely, I might add. Uh, it, was, it was one of those things that you don't want to go into a lot of detail because everybody who really had to work doing military stuff, mm-hmm. you think that they would be envious. But you know what, Dave, Sean? Every time I mentioned to somebody I was in special services as an entertainer, every GI, every Navy guy, every Marine I've ever talked to said, wait a minute, hey, don't belittle that. Yeah. Because it meant so much to the guys who were either, either waiting to be sent right. to some battlefront uh, or uh, guys who just simply had tough jobs, taking yeah. care of jet planes right. and right. that kind of thing. They loved the entertainment. So that's what I got to do and for it, two years. It sounds years. like it was foundational to some of the things that we saw during the Vietnam War with Bob Hope and other yes, entertainers. Yes, yeah, right? absolutely. It was like, like a USO tour. Right. Uh, and um, so that was, uh, that was great fun. Had a terrific company of, uh, of people who were professional singers, musicians, dancers. And... Um, at the end of the two years, a buddy said, hey, where are you going? I said, well, New York. I'm in radio. Everybody that is in radio eventually winds up in New York, and I don't want to wait. 
I didn't have a job, of course. <laughs> but it never occurred to me. Once again, it's that fear thing, you know. That mm-hmm. I, it never occurred to me that I wouldn't be able to get a job. And it had nothing to do with vanity or uh, some personal appraisal of my ability. I just thought I could get a job uh, on the air somewhere. And he said, okay, but before we go to New York, are you in any huge rush? Uh, Is anybody waiting for you? I said, no, nobody has any idea who I am. He said, well, I'm going to go to Phoenix and just shake the khaki off in a swimming pool somewhere because it's May of 1960. May. Beautiful weather. (laughs) Drove in on I-17 because that was the only freeway there was. That was it. That's right. (laughs) Or either that or Grand Avenue. Yeah, Yeah. right. Less than a freeway. (laughs) Less than a freeway, yeah. But I, uh, I drove in and I was really struck with how beautiful the area was. Always loved warm weather. Always loved tropical kinds of places or desert-oriented places. And um, so after a little while, after a couple of weeks, I said, well, nobody's waiting for me in New York. <laughs> and why don't I just, I've got my resume, um, and let me see what happens. Passed it around the television stations, actually. Just the TV stations now that I think of it. Channel 5 had a news guy going into the state legislature. They called me and said, come in, audition for a news position for daytime news, noon news or something. Mm. Yeah, I think it was the noon news. And I pronounced most of the names correctly in the audition script. I was hired on the spot. But up to that time, I only knew one thing about Channel 5. And that is that show that I saw the first time I turned a television station on here. I clicked the TV on when I first got here. And there were these two guys. (laughs) And I said, oh, not another one of those sappy kid shows. (laughs) I hate these things. Because it's usually a guy that's never been an entertainer in his life with a sock on his hand, a a low-budget a hand puppet. But then they started doing dialogue, and I said, wait a minute, these guys, they're funny. These are clever people. And this is a kid's show in Phoenix? (laughs) So that's how I became aware of Channel 5, and it's also why I wound up, every day when I was supposed to be putting the news together, I wound up in Studio A watching the Wallace and Landmo show. So you were there just in awe? Of that show. Yeah, and we got to be buddies because we had so many things in common, uh, movie uh, comics that we liked, uh, uh, comic books that we collected. Mm. And so we hit it off right away. And one day Wallace looked over in the one-person studio audience that I was, and he said, Hey, Pat, I have inadvertently, this is during a cartoon, I have inadvertently written a three-man comedy sketch. Inadvertently, of course. Yes. (laughs) I've just discovered that. And there are only two of us, as there had been for six years. Mm -hmm. They'd already been on for six years. As you know, in this business, in television, that's a career. That is a career, for sure. They said, okay, will you help us out? And I wound up helping them out for 30 years. I was the new guy, (laughs) Sean, for 30 30 years. years. (laughs) Yeah, and that's not only how I wound up in Phoenix, but how I wound up on maybe the best television show that's ever been created. Absolutely. And you're still here. You're still here after all these years. No one has ever given me enough of a good reason to leave. I've been flattered with opportunities and um, took a look and said, uh, as a newsman once said, he said, you know, sometimes... In this business, people will leave to go to the next biggest market, thinking that that's where success is. He said, instead, people like Pat and me, he said, we stayed here and let the city grow around us. Mm-hmm. And I can't think of any place that I would rather live yeah. than Phoenix. It has it all for me. 
Well, uh, your contributions to, to Phoenix and the state of Arizona, if not also the United States and the world, is just incredible. So, you know, I came to Phoenix from Bakersfield, California at the age of 10 in 1963. And I was one of those thousands, millions, I'll say, okay, millions of fans, hundreds of thousands anyway, fans that I would watch the Wallace Aladmo show each and every day. And I stopped counting the number of characters uh, that that you played, and I think it's somewhere over 100. Yeah, a guy wrote to me one time, obviously someone who is desperately in need of work, uh, but he, a guy, <laughs> guy, guy writes to me, and he says, I've counted the characters, including the ones coming out of the time machine and the, the one-shot guys who would just walk in for a brief visit and then you never see them again, 107. And I remember, because it wasn't just 100, yeah. you know, and it wasn't 92. It was 107. <laughs> I wonder where that guy is. But, yeah, it was fun. Now, let me ask you, Dave, because Sean obviously far too young to have any opinions on this subject at all. Uh, did you ever get a Ladmo bag? Yes, I did. Oh. Yes, I did. Oh, Sean. Sean, you have to understand. Uh-huh. Your father avoided years of therapy. <laughs> I can't tell you the number of people with tears in their eyes saying, so there I was. Day after day, waiting to hear my name, and it either never, or I was in the theater, or the state fair, or the studio, and the kid next to me got the land. Right, right. So, so just to be fair, Pat. Yes, I have. I did get a Ladmo bag, but you didn't ask me when, because you see, I was not. One of those kids that got the Ladmo bag. How did you get the Ladmo bag? So it was at the Kiwanis meeting a couple of years ago. And when I got the Ladmo bag from you, as well as my younger brother, Greg, whom whom you met, that is the time I got the Ladmo bag. And that's why it was such an emotional experience, because, indeed, I should have gone through therapy, because I never was chosen. And I didn't didn't feel I was worthy, Pat. It turned out to be a Kiwanis family scam. Crying out loud! They had it all organized for that reason, I guess. Yeah, the, the Rotary Club didn't get a Ladmo bag. Yeah, we got two Ladmo bags. Two, oh, two. That's right. Yeah. No, you have no idea the number of people who tell me these heart wrenches. We should tell the people, by the way, in Peoria, because you have a large uh, segment there demographically in Peoria, not Arizona, Illinois, and we should tell them. Ladmo bags were the prize that you got if you were lucky enough to have your name drawn or you were in the lucky seat. And a Ladmo bag was simply the result of initially having a bunch of prizes on the set for a kid to come in if he was chosen to be a winner. A bunch of prizes, toys. And he could pick anything he wanted. She could have a doll or he could have an airplane. Well, the show was so fast-paced until that moment because the kids are sitting there having to pick out a toy, took forever. <laughs> and finally, we went into the dressing room and said, the whole show is going into the plumbing. <laughs> so we've got to do something else. Got paper bags, grocery bags, put sponsors' products inside, Ladmos on the outside, Therein, ergo, the Ladmo bag was born. Who would know? It actually was uh, a huge motivator for kids to not only watch the show, but to go to many of the programs that you guys hosted off-site. You know, you had special events and whatnot. Oh, stage shows yeah. every weekend. I mean, all yeah. the time, all the stage shows. And isn't it sad that yeah. there are no local kids shows anymore, which means there are no entertainers on the television station in your hometown who also go to the Whataburger on the weekends, uh, you know, or the fair or something like that, and greet the audience. Not one. Yeah, that, that is a disappointment because that was truly, uh, I mean, it was something that we had in common with our friends, that we could all kind of bond together around this passion for the Wallace Aladdin yeah, show. Yeah, hated Gerald. 
I actually, you know, there was a part of me that really liked Gerald. Oh, no. Sean. Yeah, Sean, yeah, you yeah, remember yeah. when I was talking about years of therapy? <laughs> <laughs> Gerald was this hateful little Lord Fauntleroy braggart. And your father is deciding now whether that would be one of his good friends. We're talking serious frontal lobe problems. <laughs> what inspired well, that- the character? <laughs> How much time do we have? Go ahead. we got uh, 10 minutes. Oh, I've got a great 11-minute story. Uh, <laughs> no, I just wanted to tell you about one of the kids. Um, for people who are not aware of kids' shows at all in their hometowns because they don't exist anymore, or all you know about is uh, Captain Kangaroo or uh, Mr. Rogers, both of them doing a beautiful job in a totally different sphere right. than what we did. We were Monty Python. <laughs> we were Saturday Night Live mm-hmm, for kids. Mm-hmm. Sketch comedy. We had no intent to improve your standards in the community mm-hmm. more than, is it funny? We just we wanted to make you laugh. I also found out years later how many times that that laughter was therapeutic. Indeed. For... Kids who were going through some really, really serious problems at home. And they would tell me as adults, uh, this is what was going on. Uh, Divorce, death in the family. Mm. And for one hour, there was an escape mechanism. So one kid called and said, he got Wallace in the dressing room and he said, Uh, Listen, I live in Scottsdale, and my hobby is making movies. I make Super 8 movies. And I I would like to come down and just a little sample, just a little preview Mm. of showing the feature that I'm about to finish at the Kiwanis Club. (laughs) (laughs) And... uh, and and he would charge 50 cents or something like that. And that way he could afford film. Well, we saw the stuff that he was doing. And I said, oh, man, this kid is really good. How old are you? Uh, 11, 12 years old or something like that. Science fiction movies, Whoa. World War II movies, right? <laughs> and uh, we said, hey, come down. We'd love to have you. What's your name again? Steve. Stevie Spielberg. <laughs> and he was a Wallace and Ladmo freak. Watched all the time. And uh, we sure are glad we were nice to him. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I saw him not long ago, about uh, a year and a half ago. He came mm-hmm. to do a fundraiser with the Phoenix Symphony with John Williams. Oh, uh, my goodness. The conductor and right. composer. And... Uh, so I met him in the green room, and it had been a long time, and you'd think that he had just gotten a Ladmo bag. <laughs> I did bring him a Steve Mo bag. You brought him a Steve Mo. <laughs> yeah. But we, uh, we had great time just recalling all the good times, and uh, he remembered us in his biography. That's beautiful. Yeah. That's just beautiful. You know, as, as you know, we have one qualifying question to get on the show. And that is, do you love what you do? And when I asked you that question, you said, I love to make people laugh. Sure. So tell us a little more about that, Pat. Well, I I think that there's a a marvelous uh, kind of free medication uh, that happens, whether you're alone, sitting, and watching old movies like the Marx Brothers or old television shows like Sid Caesar and Imogene Coca and, uh, or Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks or, uh, as long as we're talking about Mel Brooks, Blazing Saddles. Blazing Saddles. Right. Right. Whatever, it is, whatever it is that makes you laugh, there's something that happens, I know from medical specialists telling me, that it does change the metabolism in your body. Mm-hmm. And it also frees up some of the garbage that's in our heads. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
there's a there's a gentleman who's a famed author whose name I can't remember right now, but he was he found himself in serious trouble in a hospital, and he asked at that time for Abbott and Costello movies, uh, Laurel and Hardy movies, uh, Charlie Chaplin movies, mm. uh, the old stuff, to to be fed into his television set. And he always continued to say, that's why he recovered. Mm. And so uh, making people laugh. But also, David, you know, I get a chance to do a lot more than comedy. Uh, I I do get to interview the man who found the Titanic. I do get to interview presidents. I get to interview Mother Teresa. Uh, When you're talking about uh, going to work in the morning and getting a chance to talk to the fascinating people of the world, well, that in itself is therapeutic absolutely, for me. Absolutely, and that's not lost on me right now that our talking to you is not therapeutic to us. So I'll just share that. But you interviewed Jimi Hendrix. Yes, yeah. Backstage, <laughs> backstage at the, wait a minute, Sun Devil Gym, I think it was just simply mm. called that. Wow. All the basketball games that the Sun Devils played in the 60s were played at Sun Devil Gym, 3,000 capacity. Mm. Now there's more cheerleaders. <laughs> yeah, I think <laughs> so. <than that. laughs> and, uh, but they also uh, had concerts, and I saw Jimi Hendrix. And I happen to be the program director of a rock station here called Chris, oh, K-R-I-Z. Oh, yeah, I remember that, right. And um, so I went backstage, interviewed Jimmy, And uh, I-, I want you to know that that era was another part of the the good fortune that I've had. Because if I'd been playing music from an era before that, it would have been fun. If I'd been playing music in an era after that, it certainly would have been fun. Mm-hmm. This was the 60s. That's right. This was Janis Joplin. The rockin' 60s. This is the Beatles from the beginning of the Beatles, straight through, you know. And this was... This was the world of Hubcap and the Wheels. Go ahead and well, explain that Well, that's exactly <laughs> what I was just going to ask. So you're not going to walk away from the studio without talking to, us, talking to us about Hubcap and the Wheels. You were on the Steve Allen show, the Joey Bishop show. You've done your homework. We've got, wow. We've got, I still have a 45 of work, work is the dirtiest word. Explain to people what a 45 is. It is not a gun. We're not talking about a weapon. <laughs> it's... It's a it's a small record the size with, a of a huge, pancake. with a huge hole in the middle. <laughs> yes, right. Is that was, fair enough? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Right. Now, it was a character on the Wallace and Ladmo show that was just exactly like all the other characters. We just put in costume, we need a rock and roll guy. Okay, boom, that's it. Wig, big black bouffant, uh, black eyebrows, and uh, we recorded a song called Work Works the Dirty Wood. I wrote it in four minutes. Uh, (laughs) And uh, it it got to be number one on the charts. Beat the Beatles. Capital wanted to know, what's going on in Phoenix, Arizona, and what is a hubcap (laughs) on the wheels? They came over, signed us to a contract, and we wound up recording for Capital in Studio A, which is where the Beatles recorded when they were in Los Angeles, where Sinatra recorded Nat Cole. And just an amazing experience. Everybody also should be a rock and roll star for about 45 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Your life's really not complete without that, right? It was was fun to do. It was great fun to do, and it was fun to be on all those nighttime network shows. And all of them thought it was real. <laughs> That's right. You mean it wasn't? Uh, oh, excuse me. Oh my gosh, Sean, there oh goes the gosh. therapy. Oh my gosh. <laughs> hey, listen, listeners, this has uh, been a wonderful show here with Pat McMahon. I got one more question yes. before we go here. The Bee Dream Do theme. How does that resonate with you? B. B. Not what they tell you to be. B. What in your heart you think is going to fulfill you as a human being. And that might not be a job, a career. It might just be a better human being. And uh, be, dream, that's how you get to be. Because there's no dream that can't happen in some form or another. 
just make sure that you understand that dreams can be can be answered in unusual ways and uh, and yeah. and watch for that and be dream and then do yeah because the being and the dreaming nothing's going to happen until you go out and do something and you know what as long as you're going to do something do something for yourself but at the same time do something for somebody else mm. Pat, thank you so much. A pleasure to have you. Listeners, Pat McMahon, entertainment icon, wonderful to have you here. And um, join us next week when we're going to have uh, Noelle Ringer. She is a coach and also speaker uh, on health awareness. Remember, ladies and gentlemen, do what you love and love what you do. Thank you for joining David and his guest. Make sure to catch Be, Dream, Do, Living by Design every week right here on StarWorldWideNetworks.com.